This is an ABC podcast. There are few things more irritating in life than losing your car keys. Completely forgetting where you've put them. They've just vanished. Well, there are actually a lot of things more irritating than that, but you know what I mean. Forgetting, having a bad memory, that's a sign of age, of getting old, of deteriorating. In our world, memory is good and forgetting is bad. It's as simple as that. Or is it? The new science of forgetting is attempting to turn that idea on its head, or at least to get people to be less black and white about memory. Far from being a failure of the brain, forgetting, it's now suggested, is a crucial part of the way our minds function. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. So the scientific study, the proper scientific study of memory, we date that to a monograph published in 1885 by uh, someone called Hermann Ebbinghaus, who wrote a book in German that is translated as On Memory. Dr Oliver Hart from Canada's McGill University. It's the first time someone studied memory systematically, and what's interesting is that from this work survived many things. And one thing that is very prominent is the forgetting curve that he basically found. And that is, I would say, textbook material now in all psychology classes all over the planet. And that is the the famous forgetting curve showing that there is a, a rapid loss of acquired knowledge over time or acquired memories over time. And the loss is quite dramatic in the beginning. So you have like almost usually 50% drop of retention shortly after you learn something. And then it asymptotes out, the curve gets flatter. And that's the curve he described. And that uh, has been replicated in all kinds of species. So I would say that at the beginning of the scientific study of memory actually stood forgetting. So what happened after this beginning is for some reason, there began a focus that was more interested in the forming of memories and perhaps in retrieval a little bit. And so forgetting became like something that moved a little bit into the back. In other words, we forgot about forgetting. Over the past 10 years, though, the mechanics of forgetting have been given a new focus by researchers like Dr Hart and also Scott Small the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Centre at Columbia University. In fact, Dr Small says forgetting is not only natural, it's beneficial. The first thing I'll say is that there's a distinction between what could be called pathological forgetting, the forgetting that worsens over time with ageing and with disease like Alzheimer's. That's not really what I'm arguing is beneficial. The form of forgetting that is beneficial is what could be called normal forgetting, the forgetting we all have, we are born with this forgetting, that's normal forgetting. And based on the new research of forgetting, we now know that our brain needs to balance memory with forgetting to be able to live smarter, happier and better lives. So they're two sides of the same coin, are they, in terms of the working of a healthy brain? Memory and forgetting are yeah, two sides of the same coin, or to use maybe a, a, a different metaphor, which I think is more applicable, just like an engine needs an accelerator and a braking system, so too does our mind. Why have we and why have scientists put so much focus on memory and the need to remember over time? And, and why have we, pardon the pun, but why have we forgotten about the possible benefits of forgetting? It used to be thought that 
all forms of forgetting, whether it's the normal forgetting we have, forgetting a name, forgetting where we put our keys, and the worsening of forgetting that I see in my patients, we're all reflective of the same thing, the memory mechanisms in our brain failing. And so it just seemed like if forgetting is reflective of a failure of our brain, a breakdown of memory mechanisms, then let's learn how to improve our memory. And what has happened in the last 10 years or so, which is the new science of forgetting, is that we now know that the neurons in our brains have two mechanisms that could be called nanomachines in the cells of our brains, our neurons. One dedicated to constructing memories and then a completely separate group of nanomachines that do the opposite. They disassemble components of the memory. That's forgetting. So now that we know that we have two mechanisms, it's now plausible to ask, well, if nature endowed us with separate mechanisms, they must be beneficial. Now that, of course, is not always true. But if one revisits neurology, psychology, psychiatry, one can see many examples where we really need our normal forgetting to countervail, to squelch, to sculpt our memories. So forgetting can be positive. But what's its evolutionary purpose? Oliver Hart. I think that our brains are basically engaged in promiscuous encoding. They kind of make a memory of anything that happens and you pay attention to. And that is a lot during the course of the day. And why does the brain do that? What's the point of the strategy? But the thing is that you have usually no knowledge whatsoever whether what you experience at this very moment will become significant in the future. If it holds anything that is of worth to retain, you can't make that call when it happens. First of all, you're way too busy in order to engage with the situation. You don't have, cannot make these assessments. On the other hand, there's nothing usually in the environment that allows you to make that kind of prediction. So um, the best thing to do is to just decide, I encode whatever I can of what I experience right now and deal with this later, right? So, and at the end of the day, you have an enormous amount of long-term memories assembled and we all can uh, relate to that because, I mean, that's what we habitually do without even knowing it. For example, if people go home to their families in the evening and they're asked, how was your day? It is absolutely not a problem to bring about a detailed report of the events of the day as mundane as they might have been. So for some reason, the brain made a long lasting memory record of these experiences. And that happens every day. And now imagine this happens like over the course of 20 or 30 years. If there wouldn't be forgetting, you would be cluttered with information that is absolutely useless and will hamper any normal behavior. So that is the context in which our brains evolved. In order to survive, it is best retain as much as you can of what happens right now, and then decide later, what do we have to forget? But the point is, we filling the system with long-lasting memories, and that has to be dealt with, and they have to be erased. And that's because when the system breaks down and too many memories are not actively forgotten, the consequences can be severe. The easiest example, the one I think is most intuitive, is emotional forgetting. And there we can turn to PTSD. PTSD is now known to be a disorder that is fundamentally a disorder of too much memory. If you think about any trauma that any of us experienced, if we were to relive the emotional fear of that event over and over again in perpetuity, we would be anxious and distressed. And so the fact that most of us aren't, and some do have sustained stress, that's PTSD, that's 
fundamentally an example where memory needs to be turned down by our forgetting mechanisms, our emotional memories. But then there are other chapters that deal with things that are slightly less intuitive. It actually turns out to help our cognition. It helps our creativity. It helps our creativity in what way? It helps our creativity because psychologists have defined creativity not as we often think, you know, that eureka moment, that spark. It actually is an active process of memory and forgetting. So we need to we need our memory, certainly. So, you know, v- visual artists need their visual information to remember. Poets need words, et cetera, et cetera. But what characterizes creativity is the unexpected associations between those memories. And in order to have those associations happen unexpectedly, that's the alchemy of creativity. We need our forgetting mechanisms to keep our memory associations loose and playful. And so looseness and playfulness of our memory associations is the benefit of forgetting for creativity. So this new understanding of the role of forgetting, a positive role, if you like, of forgetting in the brain, this really has quite significant implications for the way we look at disorders and the way we think about how to treat them, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And uh, in fact, if PTSD is a disorder where the forgetting mechanisms of our emotional memories are faltering, in fact, that is what's being tested right now. Think drugs like MDMA, which we now know effectively turn down our fear memories. That's a form of forgetting. And that's what's really being used and exploited in terms of our understanding of the new mechanisms of forgetting. We had very little progress in treating Alzheimer's uh, over the last 30 years, despite enormous efforts being put into this horrific disease. And one thing that always struck me as interesting is that the vast majority of Alzheimer's cases are sporadic in the sense that there's not much genetic background. In the family, for example, we would say like, okay, uh, everybody had Alzheimer's here. So it's kind of, nobody knows why it starts, right? And I have the impression after all the research that has been surfaced on active forgetting processes, that it's possible, and we need to test it, that Alzheimer's could be a lifestyle disease in the sense that our brain is kind of designed to deal with a lot of memories being encoded per day in that it has accompanying very active forgetting processes that are highly engaged. And we could think of, well, when our lifestyles actually no longer promote these inputs, uh, when things get out of balance, perhaps uh, these forgetting processes are slightly overactive. Perhaps there is something that they can spiral out of control. And this could be interacting with environmental factors like diet or like metabolic diseases or whatever. And this, however, could kind of unravel the natural forgetting process that is there to help us. And it becomes so strong that it leads to actual destruction, to atrophy in brain areas, which then manifests as Alzheimer's disease. It might actually be that the treatment of Alzheimer's then cannot be to focus on memory formation. It needs to focus on the dysregulated forgetting process. And there are hints at what, how this could look like. The more we know about the process, the better our, our angle at it. But one way could be to uh, continuously engage the brain keep it occupied. Because when you look at a lot of people that retire, 
it is almost as if their entire world is reduced to a small set of activities and compare that to what happened before. Their social uh, network shrinks. They have not much to do with work anymore. The thing is like you can imagine how a life becomes less and less rich in the diversity of stimulation a brain receives. And perhaps that along with certain lifestyle choices could lead to a forgetting system spiraling out of control. There is a spectrum, isn't there, to memory? We know that some people have very good memories and some people not so much. Is it the same with forgetting? Should we look at forgetting in that sort of way? Yeah, that is a, a good way to look at it. It's, a, you know, just like height and weight, there's a normal distribution. There are some people who have better or worse memory, just naturally. There are some people who have better and worse forgetting. And it turns out the one has to be balanced with the other. There are conditions where people have too little forgetting, and it's a sort of pipe dream to have photographic memory. We all think we want that as a superpower, but like all superpowers, it comes with the dark side. And the dark side is you can't live in a complicated, fluid world. You can't be creative. You can't forgive and forget. So those are examples of where you need to have one balance with the other. And that's certainly the case, that there's a normal distribution across all of us. In a healthy brain, how do we prioritise memories? Are there certain types of memories that we will tend to forget, that tend to get purged first? Do we know that kind of detail? A lot is known at the psychological level to address that question. And, And there certainly are some memories that are more salient and tend to be stickier. Emotional memories, right? Seeing the face of a bully, even 20 years later, will provoke a memory response. So emotions tend to be highly memorized. Uh, What's interesting, if I might add, is it's not all emotions. We tend to spray paint our mind with negative emotions. There's this great quote, I think it's an old French proverb, that whiteness doesn't show up on the page. Our brain tends to record bad memories or fearful memories more than happy memories. And then, of course, you can layer on degrees of complexity, things that are truly important for you in one's profession, etc. Things that we repeat over and over again, we tend to remember better than things that we don't. There's been a lot of research, there's been decades of research on the, the mechanics of memory. Where is it at in terms of forgetting? What the new science of forgetting has really uncovered is exactly what you're describing, the mechanism. So, We knew from the last 50 years or so, including work by my mentor, Eric Kendall, for which he won a Nobel Prize, on the mechanisms of memory. We know the nanomachines inside neurons that construct our memories by building up the connections across neurons. And like I said at the beginning, it used to be thought that forgetting was just a a rusting of those mechanisms, a sort of passive process. But now we know the specific molecules that make up the nanomachines that carefully disassemble our memories, that carefully lead to forgetting. We've been talking about forgetting at the individual level, but you also extrapolate this idea that there's a positive role for forgetting that should be remembered at a societal level. Could I get you to explain that idea to us? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's easy to say, well, if in a community, in, in society, we're, we're people, and if every person has memory and forgetting, and there's such a thing as communal memory, communal forgetting, we all have memories of our country, of our community, of our family, those, that's communal memory. And this is now delving a little bit into philosophy and morals and ethics. There are books written by philosophers on the 
ethics of memory, and there's also an ethics of forgetting. And so I'll just give you a very simple example. Amnesty, when one country forgives another country or one community forgives another community, amnesty comes from the Latin, which literally means forgetting. So just like we know in our interpersonal relationships, we need to forget in order to forgive, so too at the communal level. And that's a very timely idea, isn't it, in the world at the moment? It's extremely timely. And in fact, we're living in a more and more polarizing society, but also in the era of the pandemic. And it's really interesting that, let's take PTSD, for example. One way to prevent PTSD when someone's exposed to a trauma is to make sure that they remain social, highly socialized with their friends, family, living a life with love and laughter. And here we have clearly a trauma for some people more than others, the pandemic, right? And yet our medical recommendation is to socially isolate. And so there's an anticipation that there's going to be a very specific form of post-pandemic PTSD because of this sort of double whammy. And uh, I think what's happening now, I gather it's happening around the world. I think government officials are not only considering the medical consequences of the pandemic, but they're starting to think of the mental consequences as well. So there's going to be, it is anticipated, I think, by the psychiatric and psychological community that there will be a very specific form of post-pandemic stress disorder. Dr. Scott Small, the head of Alzheimer's Research at Columbia University and author of the newly released book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. And before him, Dr. Oliver Hart, a psychologist at McGill University. The program you're listening to is called Future Tense, available via the ABC Listen app in Australia or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anthony Fennell. And don't forget, if you come across an opportunity to rate or review our program, please do. It's a great way of spreading the word. Now, every year in Northern Ireland, men don bowler hats and drape themselves in orange to commemorate the Battle of the Boyne, which occurred way back in 1690. It's as controversial as it is colourful, a Protestant ceremony designed to remind the Catholics of Northern Ireland that the past will never be forgotten. The call to not forget is not unique to the orange order, of course. Many societies carry historical grievances against perceived enemies. Just think of the Balkans or the Middle East, for example. Former war correspondent David Reef is the author of a book called In Praise of Forgetting, inspired and informed by his own first-hand experience during conflicts where memories of the past seem to forever blight the present and the future. Remembrance as a species of morality, he writes, has become one of the more unassailable pieties of our age. It's time, he says to acknowledge that holding on to collective memories can do more harm than good. David Reef. The first thing to say about all this is that the consensus today among most decent people is that to remember is a moral act and to forget is an immoral one. That's partly piety in the sense that, you know, you want to remember your loved ones who pass on. There are all kinds of perfectly human things about all this. And then there is a kind of what you'd have to call a moral, political, intellectual view that's been probably 
has always existed, but was, if you like, encapsulated by the Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana, who said, those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You know, Santayana was a great man. He had a lot of interesting things to say. But the idea is that if you hope for a decent future, you better remember the past because it has all these lessons that you need to learn so as not to repeat the mistakes of the past and the present and the future. I think that's at best only true part of the time. I'm not an absolutist about pretty much anything, I don't think. But, you know, there are times when it's better to remember and times when it's better to forget. By forgetting, though, what I mean is public silence. I mean, let's take a place where I worked for a bit, Northern Ireland in the bad old days. In Northern Ireland, it was a low-grade intensity war, not that many people were killed, although the dead were in the thousands and many more were horribly maimed over those 30 years and suffered in all kinds of ways. But there they are, the two communities now. The war has been over for quite a long time, but they have completely incompatible memories of what happened, of who was right, of who started it, of what the conflict was about. They don't agree about any of this. But nobody really won and nobody really lost in Northern Ireland. So what people have done, for the most part, is they've decided to keep public silence on these issues where they know that the population can never agree about. And that's really what I mean by forgetting. I mean public silence. Of course, people are going to have their memories of what they went through and all that. But it's very different to talk about you know, your personal memories and to talk about memory as a political act, as a way of talking about what the future should look like, et cetera, et cetera. That's the social and political use of memory. And that I think, frankly, there are plenty of times when it's better to forget. I mean, I'm a war guy, you know, I'm, I spent 20 years in war zones. I have seen up close and personal what remembering does and how horrible it can be and how much it can be not a goad to peace or reconciliation as people tend to think of it as being, but a go to more war, more sense of victimhood or a sense of being aggrieved or being the injured party. In fact, in your book, In Praise of Forgetting, you actually come down on the side of forgetting as you say, the only safe response to the problems of the world. Why is that? Is that a reflection on human nature, on, on the aggressive side of human nature? What I come down on is what, where, I, where I stand is that I think, again, there are times when it's fine to remember and times when it's too dangerous to remember. I prefer peace treaties that aren't particularly just to wars that go on and on and on. I mean, you know, for example, in Bosnia, I spent most of the Bosnian war, the end of the Croatian war, and most of the Bosnian war in Bosnia and in Croatia to some extent, and I was a bit in Serbia, but... I just thought the war should end. And if the war ending means that people don't get to have the truth, well, I'll take peace over justice. And you don't always have to choose, but sometimes you have to choose. If you can have a just peace, great. But if it's not on offer, as it wasn't in those places, then I think it's better to forget, by which, again, I mean public silence. I mean, this is not a new idea. I use early in the book, the Edict of Nantes, promulgated by Henry IV, King of France, 
to try to end the wars of religion, which had racked the country. And he actually was a, you know, a Spanish king who had been anointed king of France. And he came wanting to end these wars of religion. The first or second line of the Edict of Nantes is you are commanded, you Catholics, you Protestants, to forget. Now, Henry IV was no fool. He wasn't saying that after all these massacres and bloodshed and the rest, that people were going to forget individually. But that as a polity, as a collective, as a society, however you want to put it, that people had to shut up and not talk about it and, as it were, sweep it under the rug. And that means all the elements of public memory, of mourning, of monuments, of legal action, that's all going to have to be dispensed with. Can that be lasting, though? Or is this really a way of of buying time to cool things down? Well, it can be a way of buying your time to cool things. I agree with you completely. For example, when Franco, in the Spanish case, the dictator finally, well, he died and there was a short interregnum. Basically, the fascist side and the, you know, the democratic side agreed on what was actually called, although I don't think it was ever formalized, the pact of forgetting. So they basically said, you can't have trials of people who may have committed crime. We've all agreed to sort of put a kind of fire blanket over what happened. In the transition to democracy, that was incredibly useful. But now in Spain, the people have outgrown it. They don't want a pact of forgetting. They want to remember, or at least an overwhelming majority of them do. And so all kinds of things that during the time this treaty, this agreement, this pact really was accepted by all the political sides in Spain, Franco's tomb, the Valley of the Fallen, which this enormous fascist monument, was basically torn down. Franco's body was exhumed and buried somewhere else. And it was time to remember. So sure, it can be that way. But sometimes I don't think it is going to be, and certainly not in any usable future. Why do we put so much store in memory then? And particularly in, in this idea of historical collective memory, when there are so many examples of where it fails us or, or where it can be manipulated. First of all, none of us like to think about our own deaths, and we don't like to think about the collective deaths of our nations and culture. I mean, even if you put it off, even if, as in Winston Churchill's famous speech to Browley, the British people against the Nazis, when he said, you know, if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. He didn't say it was going to last forever. Even he, the old imperial war horse didn't say that. You can't think in those terms. It's, it's like thinking of you as if you were already dead. I don't think you can ask that of people. What I think you can ask them is a prudential question, is what is remembering going to cost? Because certainly societies like the United States and Australia are engaged, have been engaged for some years, in a kind of wholesale reinterpretation of the past. And I'm not against that, but I want to know what it costs. I mean, if it costs civil war, then I'm against it. If it brings a measure of justice, but not huge costs, then I'm for it. But again, I think you can think about these things very pragmatically. In any case, again, speaking of the present and the future rather than the past, 
memory of the kind, political memory, collective memory, is always selective. You remember the things that seem relevant to the present and to the making of the future. You don't remember everything, certainly not in older societies. And then as time goes on, some things seem more relevant than others. That's just the way it works. You know, the people who want to talk about memory and the whole, these whole debates about memory wars, they're not about academic historians. They're about what we think about the past and what those thoughts do to influence how we think about the present and what we want the future to be like. And a lot of times that's a good thing. But again, a lot of times it isn't. Well, David Reif, author of In Praise of Forgetting, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. You'll find a link to the details of David's book on the Future Tense website. And we've also put up the details of Scott Small's effort, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. My thanks to producer Edwina Stott. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers and bye for now. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.